0: For the persecutor.
1: Welcome again. My name is Todd Nettleton. We are in the studio today with Susie Childers. If you have listened for a long time, you heard Susie along with her husband Paul previously 26 years working with YWAM. Susie, welcome back. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Well, it is our pleasure to have you. Uh, we're going to talk about what God's doing in Nigeria and what YWAM is doing in Nigeria, but uh, but I want to start out with a different question. I, I know you've just come from the celebration of life for Lauren Cunningham, the founder of YWAM talk a little bit about your memories of Lauren and uh, the the qualities that you saw in him that allowed him to make such an impact for the kingdom
2: it's about 25 years now that i know lauren i am who i am because of lauren when i came into his life he wrote the book why not women and it was all about um, you know allowing women to be in leadership and i think i was a bit of a guinea pig there uh, when I when I first came into his life, because he saw gifts in me that I did not see myself. And he would call me up on stage. I was organizing his tours, but he suddenly started to call me up on stage and ask me questions. Then he gave me the microphone and he gave me a chance to give testimonies about the things that I had seen, the things that I would experienced in the mission field. And really that changed my life. I would never sit here in this chair right now if it wouldn't have been for Lauren. And um, as I was reflecting these last four weeks, you know, one thing that is really something special about lauren he met with leaders of countries and kings and prime ministers, but he also knew my name. He knew the name of each one of my children. He had such an emphasis on individuals. And I, I remember one time I asked him, I'm like, Lauren, you know, all these names, how do you, you must have this amazing gift. And he said, it's not a gift. I trained myself. I said, why would you do that? And he said, well, people are the most valuable thing we have in YWAM. We don't pay them anything, so people are the most valuable thing. So we want to treat them with dignity and honor. And that's why I'm learning their names. That's just one thing of the many things that Lauren did. He always called us to the bigger picture. He always had visions for us that would take us a lifetime and more. You know, uh, just the uh, the last few days, I did a whole lot of tours uh, in Kona, Hawaii, for, for visitors. And I said at the end, you know, he left us not as orphans. He left us with a task that will take us more than 100 years and needs many more people than we are right now. That was him. You know, he was always looking into the future. And his ability to, to listen and obey, I think that is the most amazing thing. That's how he built YWAM. It wasn't his brilliant mind, although he had a brilliant mind. It was listening to God, believing that God was able to do anything that sounded ridiculous, and then just doing it. And and darling, just the last week, she said his calling was never a burden for him. It was never that he said, oh, I can't believe I have to do this. It was from the moment he was called when he was a young teenager. He he saw it as a privilege, a great joy in life. And every day of his life, he lived as a privilege. And so that's what he passed on to all of us, you know. For 26 years, I am I'm volunteering in Vyram, and it has been the privilege of my life. I'm so grateful.
1: What an amazing legacy hmm. uh, that he left for the kingdom and— uh, I love I love the the knowing people's names. That is such a huge thing to, to say. I see you. I know your name. I remember you. The names of your kids. Uh, what a what a way to bless people, just just by learning their names by by making that a priority. We're in the studio today with Susie Childers from YWAM. The last time you and Paul were here, uh, you talked about your family. You talked about raising your kids in in missions and for kingdom work. Uh, Paul was getting ready to take your son on his first missions trip. How did it go? <laughs> What's the end result? Because I know at the time, it, it, you guys were thinking, like, like how is this? How is he going to get through this? How is this going to affect him? What has been the, the fruit of that?
2: Well, out of that one mission trip came many other more. <laughs> he uh, fell in love with the nations. Um, he fell in love how God was even using him at an early age in a missional context he didn't realize that at home only when we took him he he saw the potential that he had himself so resulted in now long story short he is on his DTS outreach a disciple trip uh, training course that he started in Lausanne he is on a DTS outreach in Chile right now Just the other day, he called me and he just led someone to Christ. Wow. So he's starting to own his own faith. And Mm -hmm. I think that's so important for our children, any any children. You know, when they're under our covering, it's easy for them to believe. But what is happening when they can make their own choices? And he called me the first week of his TTS and said, Mom, I thought I know so much. I had no idea how big God is. And he just, he's just reading through the whole Bible once again with new glasses, and he sees new things that he had never seen before. So it's a real—ah, man, it's such a privilege to see the kids rising up and owning it That's themselves. such
1: an exciting thing for you even as a parent. Like Like, I can see the excitement that you have just to see what God is doing in his life.
2: Yeah, that's so true. It's the greatest— privilege to watch this. And I, I want to encourage you parents out there, you know, sometimes we think we need to protect our children. And we think, oh, it's too dangerous to take them on an outreach or to take them on a short-term missions trip. But really, the, the kids that are born into this wealth, you know, into this into this nation... They need to see that it's not normal. They need to see that they have such privileges. But with the privileges also comes a responsibility. How are they going to live their lives? How are they going to use their God-given gifts and their education to make a difference in the world? They will never be happy if they, they use all this stuff for themselves. You know, the real happiness comes when we share with others. And there's great need in the world. And God needs people. You know, he has always done it through people. And he has done it through ordinary people.
1: Amen. And young people have a lot to offer, uh, even at a young age. God can put you to work. God can use you. So I I join you in saying, hey, get your kids involved in, in gospel work. Get your kids involved in missions. Take them somewhere. Make sure they have a passport and it start, start getting stamps in it. Susie, I, w- I want to talk about Nigeria. I know you have been there just recently seeing what v- what YWAM is doing, uh, working especially among widows and orphans, but, but maybe— Let's start out with a little bit of perspective. I don't think people often think about how big Nigeria is and how many people there are. Give us a little bit of kind of background on on just how important Nigeria is as a country on the continent of Africa, but also as a country in, in the whole world.
2: So Nigeria is called the giant of Africa because 223 million people live there. It's the most populated country in Africa. They have 500 different languages. I mean, it's crazy, right?
1: That is mind-blowing to me.
2: Yes. And they have the largest youth population in the world. So the medium age is 18.1 years. To compare that with America, it's 38.1. So 70% of the population are under 30 and 42% are under the age of 15. It's a young nation. And it's growing really fast. The prognosis says that by the end of this century, Nigeria will be the second largest country in the world after India.
1: So making an impact for the gospel in Nigeria is, yeah. is, is vital. It's vital, <laughs> It's right? vitally important. We think about Nigeria as far as persecution. We think about Boko Haram. We think about radical Muslims from among the Fulani tribe. We've had uh, people affected by that kind of persecution here on Voice of the Martyrs radio. What does YWAM's work in Nigeria look like?
2: So we have a, a big work, the work that I visited, I've visited several ones, but the, the major one. Uh, Is in the south of Nigeria. So you have the north that is uh, predominantly now Islamic by force, really. And you have the south that's more Christian, so it's safer. And uh, one thing we're doing, which is so amazing, we're bringing widows and orphans down from the north. And you need to understand this women have nothing, they come with nothing. They have often only the clothes on their bodies. Um, They have um, been displaced. Their villages are unlivable, their husbands are dead, they lived in the bushes, they are looking um, for help in in churches. And, And those people are the ones that we bring down to the South, and for six months they are with us. Three months is a discipleship training school, which is the theory phase where they really learn what it means to forgive, what it means that God loves them, what it means that there's still hope even when their husbands are killed. And that God still has a good plan for their lives. So that's a three-month um, course on the base. And then there is an outreach phase to it as well, where we sent them out in the southern part of Nigeria into the churches to share their testimonies. Because even people in Nigeria are not aware of what's happening in the north, Right. Um, and so it's a fascinating thing that God is doing. And God, in the process of all of this, the major part that God is doing in the heart is he's actually really healing them from their traumas. And he's not doing this through trauma experts. He's not doing this through counselors. He's actually doing this supernaturally. Uh, I woke up, I was woken up at 2 or 9 uh, at night, um, the first day I was there, and I thought, what is this sound? It sounds like heaven. And he was singing, so I got dressed, and I got out, and it was pitch dark, no electricity. And I met this woman with torches reading their Bibles, praying, praying for the for the killers of their husbands that God would have mercy on them. Wow, praying as watchmen over the villages and on the places where their their children were still and their their relatives were living um and and God, in this in this realm was touching their hearts about forgiving, about hope, about letting go of the pain. And it was powerful to see how the Holy Spirit was working with this woman, especially at night, every night. So I got up. I said, Lord, if you wake me up, I get up I get up every night. And every night I was there, I got up. And it was a holy place. I did not even dare to go inside until they, they really brought me in and they opened the circle for me to sit with them. I didn't understand much. Um, I was translated, you know, they translated it, but it was so powerful. It was a holy place. One of the most holiest places I've ever been in my life, ever experienced. I felt like I was was seeing a a, a part of heaven.
1: Those midnight prayer sessions, was that something somebody organized? Or Uh was God just drawing people out of their sleep and out of their huts or homes
2: to gather? Or how did it start? That's a good question. It was my question. And the leader said to me, we were so astonished. We didn't plan that <laughs> at all. We didn't organize No, we didn't tell them. We told them about the power of prayer. And they, they came and, and had, you know, many of those women are actually totally uneducated. Mm-hmm. They can't read or write if they only have their basic education. So they didn't come with all the, the background. So many things they hear is the first time they're hearing it. And so they just taught them certain things, right? And this woman organized themselves, and they actually have watch hours at night. They start at 1 o'clock till 4 o'clock, and they have different women and children. Even the orphans come, and they have different women getting up in the middle of the night. They organize it themselves, and they stay there for an hour, and then the next group comes. And that's how they do it because they know that most of the attacks happen in the early Mm -hmm. morning hours. And so that's what they are doing. So it wasn't organized by any great leader. It was organized by the women themselves.
1: Wow. Susie, when you go, what is your focus? I, I know we talked when you were here before about your background as a photographer. Uh, and at one time you thought, well, how could the Lord use me? I'm a photographer. He is using you. But but when you go on a trip like this, what is your focus? What Kind of what's your schedule for a day? Mm-hmm. How does it work for you to be there?
2: So I really, when I joined Vyram, I came with my camera and I didn't know what it meant. But the Lord, he showed me that he wanted me to be a voice for the voiceless. So I go to places where there is need, where there are stories that no one knows about. There are heroes out there, guys. I tell you, people that are amazing and no one knows about it. There is incredible suffering out there and no one knows about it. So I uh, connect with people. That's my heart. And I I studied it over the years, and I learned that we cannot combine people with statistics or numbers. People can only understand what someone goes through if we connect hearts to hearts, people to people. So that's what I do. I use my camera. I take my camera, and I sit down with people, and it's often two hours and longer, and I ask them to share about their lives. And sometimes they're very uh, superficial. You know, they're not not sharing in depth, and I know there is a deeper part of this. So I have had the great privilege as a woman to really connect with women. You know, sometimes I have to literally ask all men to leave the room so that the woman would get uh, honest about what they are really feeling. But um, I, I'd like to hear the, the heart of the story, the heart of their suffering, the heart of what they are struggling through. And and then after I have heard the story then I take the pictures because then I know what I'm looking for, right? I'm not going to make them fake laugh um, because that's a cuter picture. No, I want to have the picture according to the story that they're uh, uh, telling me. So I'm just trying to connect. And then I, I, after taking the picture, I try to be the bridge between, I always say, between the potential and the need. People who want to do something, who want to help and people who are in need, but they can never meet. They will never meet in this life uh, unless someone like me builds a bridge. And I'm building my bridge through the pictures. And so I'm taking the pictures, then I'm showing it to people. And I say, look, you guys can actually become each other's brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's a powerful connection when that is made. Because that's what God made this world, you know, for. That's, that's how Jesus lived, you know. He, he wants us to be connected to our suffering brothers and si- sisters and give them hope and encouragement.
1: How much weight is it on you at, you know, you go on a week-long trip and you spend all day every day hearing really hard stories, you know, oh, my husband was killed brutally. Oh, my parents were killed. Oh, I had nothing. My house was burned. How, how How do you get up the next morning and say, man, I want to hear some more of those stories? Or how do you process that personally because they're they're sharing these really deep and really hard things with you how does it affect you in in your heart
2: so when i was in nigeria just lately i came to the limit of what i could do i had planned to there are 106 widows right now at the viman base and i had planned to interview them and i realized by by the 25th that i was not paying attention as much as i could I realized my mind was going off because the stories were uh, similar, right? They had all been uh, in a place where their husbands were killed. They were widows. They were suffering. They were struggling through life. And I just realized I was shutting down. By the 27th, I realized I I was, you know, I, I couldn't take it anymore. And so when I had the 30th, I said, I'm so sorry, but I have to stop here. I had to protect myself because, I mean... It's painful what you hear. And I cried with all of them, you know, and, and I, yeah, my, my emotions were completely involved. I'm not just a photographer. So, you know, in years and years of this work, I once was asked that before and I, I actually answered something. I was quite surprised myself what I said. I said, it's like a scar. Every story I hear is like a scar on my heart. And a scar is, is not beautiful, right? It reminds you of some painful moment in your life. But the scars on my heart made me into the person that I am today. I would not be the same person. And I would not be as joyful as I am today if I wouldn't have heard all the stories. I wouldn't be so thankful if I wouldn't have heard all the stories. So don't be afraid uh, to really connect deeply with people's pain. Because in the midst of that, God is also shaping your heart, is tenderizing your heart, is softening your heart. And that is actually a real privilege. And by doing that, you know, you receive a piece, a tiny little piece of God's heart that is broken over those situations. and And I remember one time I I, took, I I was in Afghanistan and I had this terrible picture of a young person, and you could see all the pain in his face. And someone came up to me and said, "I cannot look at your picture. This is too hard." And I didn't really I did not want to offend anyone. And I went to the Lord and I said, "Lord, is it wrong what I'm doing?" And the Lord said to me, people are not willing to look at a picture for a few minutes when I hear the cries of those people day and night. And that is really the perspective. You know, God hears the suffering of each individual every single moment, day and night. And so he's challenging us to carry a little piece of his heart. And it's not too hard. So, yes, I come to my limits, but there is always grace in God when you walk in his ways, there is grace, and you can do more than you think. And then there's this grace ticket. Someone Sometimes you have to put it down, and it's enough grace for that situation. So uh, really, for you that might not ever go to Nigeria, I want to encourage you deeply connect with people. Don't be super, uh, superficial. So many people, even here in America, anywhere in the world, carry so much burden. They carry so much hurt. And all they are longing for is someone to listen you don't need to fix them. You don't need to have the solution. Just sit there and listen. And sometimes the only thing you can do is cry for them. And that might be the most powerful thing you can do. So I want to encourage you. Really, really um, yeah, go deep with people. Let them share their hearts with you. And if they give you a chance, then share your heart with them as well.
1: Amen. One of the things that encourages in, in those situations— Uh, is you see how God is working. And you talked about in the middle of the night, God is redeeming the loss, and he is rebuilding these ladies. Um, Maybe share some of those stories uh, that that you heard from some of these widows. Um, Obviously hard stories, uh, but stories that have joy also.
2: Yeah, I mean, as I sit two hours, I listen, right? I, I get the story. So one of them was Ruth Tabaki. She is from Kaduna in uh, Nigeria, 38 years old, has three kids. And her husband, uh, Tauda, was 48 years old when he was shot because he was a missionary to Northwestern, uh, Western Nigeria. He died on June 14 in 2022 when some Fulanis came into their village and they just shot women, men, and children. And she told me, she said, they asked my husband if he was a local. But he told them that he was not, but that he was a missionary. He fully knew that this would cause his life, kill his life, because they didn't like that. He pleaded for mercy and asked them, you know, to not kill him, but committed himself to God in that situation, and they had no mercy with him. They just shot him and they killed him. They took his laptop, his his phone, his clothes. One even was wearing the clothes when they left on the motorcycles. And uh, Ruth said, You know, anytime I remember that, it's so pacef- painful. She said, I did not struggle to forgive them. But even when you forgive, you cannot easily forget. So the pain is still there. But then, you know, God invited them. I say God because, you know, God opened this realm for them to come and do this DTS. And uh, God has touched these lives. They they, they all say the the school has transformed my life. I've learned about forgiveness. That's what they all say. It's not easy to forgive, but I choose to forgive. And I always also answer them or ask them, what are you going to do with what you learned here? And, And one of them said to me, I cannot read or write. I've never learned how to read or write, or, write, or write. But I have learned so much, and I'm storing all of what I'm hearing in my brain. That's literally <laughs> her, words, her words. And then she said, the only thing I will be able to do is to bridge. And I'm looking forward to do this. They, all, of them, most all of them are going to go home. Uh, many of them have on their hearts to connect with those that hurt them most, to extend forgiveness to them. And they want to be examples of what it means to forgive. And to start all over again with a God that gives them a second chance. And it's powerful to see the power of forgiveness, man. And I'm thinking, how often have I had a hard time to forgive little things? You know, no one has killed my husband. I have little things in families. How much is happening in families because of unforgiveness? And I think those women show us how it is possible. If they can forgive the killers of their husbands, we can definitely forgive some of our relatives or some of our neighbors or some of our friends that have done bad things to us. So let's be people of forgiveness, you know, and really live out the Bible uh, so that people can see that Christianity can make a difference. Amen.
1: What structure is in place in northern Nigeria to help widows and their children? And it is... I mean obviously there is churches but they're not huge and they're not wealthy. What is a widow like like if a woman's husband is killed today what is she looking at in the next few weeks or and months and years as far as surviving and putting a roof over her head and and all those things.
2: So um when those attack happened happens all over the place um they normally run. They have no time to get stuff from the, from their houses They just run for their lives. They take their children, the women, and and run away. And if they're lucky, they hide. They run far enough away that they don't find them because they normally look for them. And if they find them, they um, most of the times kidnap them and then force them into either servanthood um, or into sex slaves. I mean, that's what it is, really. And they are forced to give birth to children that will become Muslims because they have no choice. So that's what they know. So they are running for life. They are running with their children for life. And if they um, escape, they, many told me that for several weeks they were just running. They were just somewhere in the bush and they were just walking towards one direction. And when they come to a, a place um, that is a bit bigger, they are looking for churches. That's what they're looking for. The churches, are, as you said, are small. They are not wealthy, but they take them. That's when we connect. Mm -hmm. That's when we come along. And so we work always with pastors and church leaders. um, And we ask for the most needy women. We ask for those that had the most traumatic stories, that they're most vulnerable and they're most needy. And every quarter, so every three months, we would like to do it. It's a matter of money. It's about $500, um, actually $600 now. It was $500 to bring them down to give them uh, six months of food, shelter, education. And we added another $100 because in in my time with the widows, I realized, and that is the most oh, challenging thing, when they had no money, when they had no income, when their kids were hungry and they didn't know how to bring them through, most of them, their only chance they got and they had was to sell their bodies. So many of these Christian women that lost their husband because of their Christian faith, had to sell their bodies, have to sell their bodies. There are thousands of them right now doing that as the only way to feed their children. So when I realized that in my interviews, oh, my heart was so broken. And I said to the violent leaders, we need to give them skills. We need to train them. And so now we're adding another $100. So for $600, a woman can to come down for, for six months. We just bought 112 um very simple um uh, sewing machines i mean we would we would throw them away or put them into an antique shop but it's the only way we can do it because those um, sewing machines don't need electricity is mm-hmm. what they don't have anyway so we buy them for about $65-$70 and then we give them also thread and needles and materials so when, and then we teach them how to make simple things you know, simple dresses, simple headscarves simple, simple bags in the three months they're with us we teach them how to do that and when they go home we want to give them uh, more materials so that they can start a business right away We also teach them how to do soap and shampoo and washing powder, things that everyone needs. It's actually really simple to make it. But those are the things that will help them to not just survive, but to also thrive. And my challenge on this woman, as you have been now given things to look after yourself, could you open your heart for one of the widows so that with what you make, you can help one to thrive with you, wow, and teach them so that they then, uh, in return, become people that that impact others. Mm-hmm. So that the, the kind of a discipleship us. model. It's I mean, a discipleship it's... model, but it's also in the area of business. Mm-hmm. Some of them, you know, have expressed they would le- le- like how to learn how to read and write. So this is a growing area where we want to really send them home with skills. And we want to make sure that all the orphans that are coming, we have started a school that is also for the surrounding villages. So these kids are getting integrated. These orphans are getting integrated into a system where they are also healthy kids so that they can have friends and that they can become kids. Mm -hmm. And we see them as those that really will change the future of northern Nigeria because they all want to go home. They all want to go back. I was shocked when I heard that. I thought, oh, they're going to want to stay here. And they said, no, we want to go home. We want to carry this message of forgiveness home to our wow, to our areas. Beautiful.
1: Susie, as we close out, we always try to equip listeners to pray. So I have three prayer questions for you. First, for YWAM, we talked about the fact that, that Lauren Cunningham has gone on to heaven. How can we pray for YWAM during this sort of season of transition?
2: Yeah. Um, so as I said before, Lauren left us with a whole lot of work, which is awesome. <laughs> which is wonderful. We are not going to be vision. bored. But of course, th- there's a lot of question: who who is taking us into the future? He was he was way more than our leader. We have not a hierarchical structure in Wyrm, so we are living. Uh, we are connected through our relationships and through a set of beliefs and values that that, that bring us together. So if you want to pray for Vyram, pray that we would hold on to those beliefs and values that really make us one. And uh, we we have so many expressions, but we, we know that we would know who we are. And uh, let's pray for Darlene, Lauren's wife. She's 84. She's top fit. And she's the one who is taking this mission forward now as well. She's a very strong lady. She's going to do uh, about 15 different events all around the world to celebrate Lauren's life Oh wow! in the next half year, uh, just to bring the mission together and to let people mourn. But we have a big job to do, and so that we would be faithful to the calling of God in our life. And he always called us to listen and obey. He said, I am so sure as I can be that uh, God is taking wire into the future as long as you listen and obey. So that we would never get too professional in our approaches and that we would know how to do it. But that we would always humble, be humble enough to ask the Lord and, and obey what he says.
1: Amen. So my second prayer question is now for Nigeria. And uh, we've actually had Paul, the leader of the base there, here in the studio. he been on VOM Radio but how do we pray for, and, and I'm I'm thinking of the widows, I'm thinking of the orphans, how do we pray for them right now?
2: So right now we have 112 widows and 70 orphans on the base. And I just talked to the leaders there, and he said, man, when those kids came, they had no boundaries. Fully <laughs> traumatic, you know, terrible experiences. And they just, I mean, they just damaged anything they could find. Very... Um, it's very hard to actually guide them forward. So they have been there now for two and a half months. Um, Things have settled, but there's still so much more that God wants to do in the life of this woman. So just pray that they would all break through in the area of forgiveness, in the area of hope for their own future, in the area that God is not done, even though it was their husbands most of the times who had the ministry, but that God now wants to use those women and that they would understand that the impact of their lives is going to multiply in others so that they would be strong enough once they leave, they're about to to go on outreach. Um, it's not, you know, it's in the southern part, so it's it's quite safe, so that their testimonies would be powerful and the church in the south would also stand with them and, and take their place, you know, to provide for them and to uh, encourage them. But that this woman, each one of them would be, when they go home, would be a light they would be solved and that their faith would be strong enough to you know when when stuff happens again and when things get hard that they would hold on to the things that they would, that they learn right now that god would seal it in their hearts and they would never walk away from the things that they had learned have learned and that they would become the seeds you know that that would fall into the the ground and bear much fruit for the kingdom amen
1: Before you went on this last trip, you you felt like the Lord was leading you to collect something and take with you on the trip. Tell us about that and tell us how the Lord used that once you got there in Nigeria.
2: So very randomly, before I left, I felt the Lord was saying to me, I should collect jewelry from my neighbors and my friends. And I should take it to Nigeria. And I was wondering, what is this all about? You know, sometimes you wonder if it's your own voice or who's telling me that. So I did it, but really not knowing what that was. And I, I was quite surprised how many people have jewelry laying around that they never wear. You know, and I said, it doesn't have to be the most expensive one. It doesn't really matter. Anything, I take anything. So um, I remember I listened to the first widow sharing her heart. I wept. Um, and then I did listen to the second one. And she stopped in the middle of her story and broke down and couldn't talk anymore because the story was too fresh. It was only a few uh, months ago. And so she cried and I just hugged her and we cried together because there was nothing I could do. And I, I don't know, I lose time when, when I do that, but I, we were hugging each other for a long time. And in the middle of this, the Lord reminded me of this jewelry and I suddenly knew what I had to do. So I got up and I I, I took a little bracelet, just just grabbed one thing, and I put it on her arm. And I said to her, I want you to know that Jesus has not forgotten you. I want you to, I I, I give you this jewelry to remind you that you are precious in the eyes of God. And that uh, God is with you every day of your life. I had a few rings, too. That was even more powerful. I gave it to them, and I put it on their fingers, and I said, now, as your husband has died, Jesus wants to be your husband, and I want you to remember that by wearing this jewelry. And it was a a powerful moment for both of us. I mean, those women, they looked at me in in unbelief, right? It was such a, a deep moment where God really, I felt like he was getting through to the very heart of hearts, but it was also a powerful moment for me, you know, seeing how how God was using a little act of kindness to touch those women's hearts and and heal something that maybe words couldn't touch. Uh, and it was very and I and I, you know, as I was walking the campus and women right and left, they were all wearing their jewelry. It was such a beautiful thing, you know, in, in the days to come when I saw them and they were so, I could I could see they were wearing that with honor and. And, and then God started to speak to the leader and said, don't call it the, the, the school for widows. Uh, they are not widows any longer. They are women of honor. So now the whole school is called the Women Woman of Honor DTS. And that's really who they are because God is changing lives as we talk.
0: Amen. Christians in hostile nations may live far from us. As believers, we know that we are one with them and part of the body of Christ. As such, we can't ignore their suffering. If the Holy Spirit is impressing you to know more and support the work of Voice of the Martyrs, please visit our website at vom.com.au. All donations of $2 and more are tax-deductible in Australia. This has been a production of VOM Oz Radio, Voice for the Persecuted.